0: This week on Dig Me Out. I am a scientist, I seek to understand me. All of my immunities and evils yet unknown. I am a journalist, I write to you to show you. I am an incurable, and nothing else behaves like me. With your hosts, Jason Diaz and Tim Minichi
1: Jay, we're back again with another episode thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at DMOUnion.com or DigMeOutUnion.com. And Jay, speaking of the Dig Me Out Union, we have uh, new folks joining us this particular, uh, this past week. Uh, we need to welcome Tom Anderson, joined us. Uh, I think not from the United States because he's got the le- weird little squiggly thing in front of his um, patron amount. OK, uh, so it's either like the UK or Neptune. I'm not sure where that money came from. It's a it's a weird backwards E upside down F thing. I don't know. It's a we pound or a neptunians ruble.
0: Neptunians or yeah. Neptunians. I don't know what you would call somebody from it's Neptune. A,
1: it's a, a <laughs> crueler. What are they? No, that's a donut. That's a donut. (laughs) (laughs) I've eaten gruelers, yeah. Uh, They're delicious. They are delicious. People from Notre are delicious. Yes, exactly. Uh, We are doing a roundtable, Jay, voted on by our patrons. And, of course, when we do a roundtable, that means we have to uh, have some people on who know more about it than us. Because usually when it comes to a roundtable, we're relying on our guests to provide... Their insight and wisdom, and that is the case with this episode. Jay and I are woefully unprepared and uh, confused by this topic. So to talk about lo-fi in the 90s, welcoming back a pair of guests who have been here before. Welcome back, Mr. Ryan Allen. How are you? I'm quite well. Thanks for having me. You, you've been on a tear of releasing music recently. Uh, are you... Um, did you have anything out this week or something coming out next week? <laughs>
2: uh, I can't remember.
1: Uh, <laughs> wow. No, uh,
2: I, I did release something. I think it was last week. Yeah. I think. Uh, and uh, we're work, always working on something. And uh, the 7... People who care uh, can get excited because I'm sure something else will appear at some point.
1: And uh, you have previously joined us for such episodes as Nirvana, Nevermind, an album people have heard of, pop punk in the 90s, power pop in the 90s, and our Thanksgiving episode, what we were thankful for in 2020. Which was not a lot. (laughs) Hold on, I'm being interrupted by my daughter. Yes, go get your glasses. That are not prescription. She just likes to wear glasses that have no prescription. <laughs> so,
2: so very 90s of her.
1: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, also joining us, you might remember him from such episodes as Spoon in the 90s and Modest Mouse in the 90s. Welcome back to the show, Reed Strength. Hi, Reed.
3: Hi, guys. I am so honored to be here. And look, I, I promise... That I'm not going to belabor this point every time I'm on, but the first time that I was on in the Spoon episode, you guys mentioned that you know as I keep climbing the ladder of dig me out that I would get a jacket as like a as like a recurring guest, and I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> I keep checking the mail. <laughs> I know there were issues with the U.S. Postal Service last year, but there I'm just, were. I'm just putting it out there, you know, friendly reminder is all.
1: Uh, we're we're working on that. Uh... We've had some uh, manufacturing problems. Our our uh, our particular plant that we used uh, was uh, shut down for COVID seven times. Sure. So um, unfortunately, uh, we haven't been able to get those jackets printed up as uh, as quickly as we'd like. Okay. But uh, they, they we're working on it. We're working on it. Okay.
3: The price
0: okay. of gold thread is just through the roof.
3: Yes. Whoa. Exactly. Bear with us. Oh my gosh! Yeah. It, it, surely um. it's the it's the <laughs> shovel and gold, right? That's what exactly. I'm picturing. Yes. Right, on, right
1: awesome. on the on the on the pockets where you know where that. that goes um should be like
0: a badass jean jacket with a
1: back patch
2: is it it satin (laughs) or numbers only uh type situation Well, there's a few directions you can take this
0: Well, what's the 90s jacket while we're on this like what is the like 80s i've got a bunch of candidates
2: the 90s jacket is the gas station attendant jacket okay yeah um, yeah with like a name tag patch on it
0: that would be pretty slick. That's
2: that's the one. Which I had uh, I had a sub pop uh gas as, as a nineties
3: disgruntled team. So that not, that is the ultimate nineties jacket, actually. It really okay. is. That is yeah.
1: the that is the jacket, yeah. Yeah. Not the members only jacket from the eighties. That's the uh <laughs> that's the wrong decade, but yeah. Uh so we'll look into that. Um so as I mentioned, our patrons voted on our round table. They had a couple options to choose the, the subject or, or the, what we we're going to cover. And then in the comments, they said uh, what they'd like us to do. So this is one of our genre dissections, which we've done on shoegaze in the 90s, pop punk, punk, uh, swing music, you name it. We've done emo, everything. And they wanted to do lo-fi. And we were like, OK, uh, so who's going to come on? And then they all backed out. They were like, well, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> They're like, uh, good luck
0: with that, suckers. <laughs> yeah, they, they
1: basically suckered us into doing this. And well, we don't know. You figure it out. Um, so. Jay and I started, you know, taking some initiative and, and listening to records. And Jay would be like, is this Spoon Record lo-fi? And be like, no, it's indie rock. It's indie. Well, what's the difference between lo-fi and indie? I don't know. Uh, there's there apparently is a difference. So let me ask you guys um, our, our experts here. What to you? I'll start with you, Reed. What to you makes an album lo-fi?
3: Sure. So, you know, it's interesting because when we think about lo-fi and indie rock, you were talking sort of about this like spectrum that they're both on and how, you know, there are a lot of lo-fi albums that are indie rock albums and and vice versa. I think to me, lo-fi like indie rock was maybe first describing a, uh, you know, method of recording style, right? Especially something that is very home recorded, maybe on a four track, lots of tape hiss, lots of imperfections that are still part of the mix, right? So guitars that are maybe like way out of tune, singers that aren't you know going to go far on American Idol but still kind of present something unique and so when I think of lo-fi specifically and I guess how I separate it out from everything else is it's it's that super rough recording quality right it is something like a really early Mountain Goats record or maybe some you know Uh, guided by voices in the heyday that is just very purposefully kind of thrown together, collaged, um, you know, sounds like it was recorded in somebody's living room. And that was the point. And I think, and we'll get into this, I'm sure, but I I think lo-fi maybe started as just a, uh, a means of production for a lot of musicians, but then eventually, um, maybe as that music started to kind of get distributed there was something about that character of that rough recording quality that people thought, Ooh, this is actually better than if it was in a studio with this kind of polished sheen. So, so yeah, again, I, I guess that's how I, I separate it out It's lo-fi is like purposefully recorded in a really low mixed home recorded four track kind of environment. Um, and okay. that's, that's the whole point of the project. Yeah.
1: Okay. That, that sounds what my rough idea of it is. Ryan, um, now you do home recording. Um, do you consider what some of what you have done to be lo-fi in the recordings or is it just that you have to be recording at home and, and what are your perspective? What's your perspective on what lo-fi is?
2: Uh, I think it's cause I have no idea what the fuck I'm doing. Uh, <laughs> probably my honest answer. Um, I think a lot of, you know music that's been and records that have been categorized as lo-fi are made out of sort of necessity rather than uh it being the artist's uh aesthetic choice necessarily so i think the easiest example would be guided by voices who whose early records are were made in a studio you know um I think those first couple of records, uh, you know, they, they they that kind of sound like R.E.M., very sort of like jangly guitar, Pollard's vocals are sort of affected with like a British kind of like, uh, you know, accent or whatever. You know, they started like any normal band might start, you know, where they cobble together songs, they go to a real studio, they record them. And in the case of GBV, nobody really heard it, right? And I think as time went on, they realized that, hey, you know, we still want to do this. We still want to make songs. You know, obviously Robert Pollard is an incredibly prolific musician and songwriter, um, but we maybe don't want to spend all the money uh, from our day, you know, day jobs. You know, Robert as a you know a teacher. Uh, on on a on studio time and plus we're we're creating so much so quickly that you know the the effort that would go into uh you know booking studio time and rehearsing and 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 all the things that you kind of do to prepare um th- th- you know their their production and their their output just couldn't keep up with that kind of like you know, oh, well, you know, the studio is booked for, you know, three months and, you know, f- for, for somebody like Robert Pollard, three months is like 300 songs, you know, that he might be sitting on. So I think for them and, and for a lot of, of of kind of prolific musicians, and I guess I would include myself in that category, it's just about, I don't want to wait, you know, I don't, but maybe I also don't have the money. And, and obviously right now, you know, being in uh, during <laughs> trying to make music during a pandemic, it's, you know, it's getting better and, you know, people are figuring it out and doing mass studio sessions and stuff. But in the early days of this, I was just like, I better buy some mics and like figure this out and make, and just capture whatever I'm coming up with. Cause I'm a really bored and B I seem to be writing a lot. So I think a lot of musicians like Lou Barlow is another great example, or, um, uh, I don't know if you know the band, the Bevis front or Bevis front, I think it's Bevis front, but like, um i can't remember his name it's nick something you can look it up but um it's another guy who's just like super prolific and they just they don't want to wait you know they want to capture it right then and there and and home recording and four track recording um you know makes it possible and and sometimes it's not about like trying to get the perfect take or, or make it sound incredible you know it's about capturing the moment and and lo-fi is is uh and that lofi mo- approach is, is the way to do it
1: mentioned four tracks so or i think both of you did um does that correlate to cassette culture especially in sort of the the 80s and and 90s um with the ease of being able to record literally just your guitar and your vocal to a boombox? you know before even if you couldn't even afford a four track you could hit record on a on a on a little you know, fifty dollar or or forty dollar boombox in the nineties or in the eighties and record that um, through the little terrible microphone. Um, does it have a, a correlation to cassettes because of the ease of recording before there were CDRs and and whatnot? Probably yeah. not
0: just recording. It's probably distribution too, right? I mean, it's you think about it. You go from vi- vinyl culture to. Cassette culture, it's not just easier to record it, but you can just take those recordings and dub them on cassettes and give them away or sell them for very cheap, too. Right.
1: Right.
2: I think Reed mentioned uh, the Mountain Goats. Uh, and that's like the, I think, the, the most well known example of somebody who, again, super prolific songwriter but was, you know, those early Mountain Goats records were not, they didn't even get to the four track. It was literally like a boombox. And I think he just, I'm not like a huge fan, but I think John uh, just released something new last year that was like back to the boombox style, like just, you know, recording acoustic guitar straight into the, and that's how Pollard does it too for his demos, but I'll let Reed maybe. Speak on that more. He might be a bigger fan than I am.
3: Yeah, no, I mean, I think, you know, the Mountain Goats, uh, totally in, in terms of that cassette um, connection, I think are there. Another band that I have only really started to scratch the surface of and isn't so much part of, I think, the 90s lo fi scene, but definitely part of that 80s cassette swapping scene is the Cleaners from Venus. Um, you know, that was basically his whole thing, right? Where he would uh, Martin, I forgot what his name is, but, uh, you know, he would record these like crazy sunshine, psychedelic pop albums on these cassettes and just mail them out and distribute them that way. And, uh, I think after a while, kind of like John Darnell from the Mountain Goats eventually found, um, you know, that was sort of his introduction to, I think more of a, a fan base and eventually found the means to go into a studio. And I feel like from what I've heard of that kind of recording, like, I don't know, it, it loses part of that charm that makes the, uh, the rougher stuff that he had, um, you know, so unique and characteristic. And I think it's interesting too, when we were talking about, um, you know, how prolific a lot of these lo-fi musicians seem to be, I would, I'll I'll put it out there and I'm interested what you guys think but I almost feel like sometimes when I think of lo-fi albums for the most part they aren't these 12 song collections and they aren't these like super specific concept albums they're more of sort of like mixtapes of just a bunch of different songs all at once can be different track lengths uh you know can be pretty removed from just your Traditional song structure as well. They seem, for the most part, most lo fi albums that I think of are just these very kind of freewheeling, off the wall kind of collage pieces. Um, would you guys say that that's something you've heard as well or noticed?
2: Yeah, I think that um, One Foot in the Grave mm. by Beck is maybe a, a good example of that, you know, where he really took that to the next level, of course, with his later recordings. but um, that has that, that, that feel to an extent, I think even like, um, Olivia Tremor Control is another band who I think is made, you know, basically psychedelic master pop masterpieces on a four track, yeah. you know, to have that kind of collage feel where things get cut off or, you know, there's, there's, uh, it's like a warts and all kind of approach, right? and I, and obviously, b thousand alien lanes, those are again, perfect examples where there's a collage kind of feel where you know something gets uh, cut off in the middle. um you know, it might be just a verse and a chorus, and all of a sudden it's it's on to the next. And again, I think it it does come back to this just like spontaneous explosion of inspiration and trying to capture it in in its rawest form um, without, you know, uh, taking it to that place where it might feel more watered down if it was tried, if those same, like if B-1000 was recorded in a studio. Um, I don't think it would have nearly have had the same impact on people as it did because it felt like in that same way that people maybe in the, you know, early eighties heard Ramon's records and felt like, yo, I could do this. Like, this is, this is, I can, I can replicate this. I think people heard those GBV records um, and said, I can, I can do that. I think, you know, I mean, it it, it opens the door for um, more people to feel like they can be a little fearless.
1: Well, and speaking of those GBV records, that's a perfect example if you go to listen to this, especially the stuff from the early 90s, where you'll have one song that sounds like it is run through a paper shredder, like it is just absolutely like, uh, you know, (laughs) noise, and it's a minute and a half, and then the next song will have like beautiful chorus on it, but it'll have like really tiny drums, and it's just, and there's just this wild uh, change from song to song because they were, like you said, they were writing hundreds of songs and then just saying, okay, here, well, here's the 25 songs we're going to compile for this record. That's going to come out this month. And then, you know, in six months, we'll put out an EP of, of 12 songs that are going to be each one minute long, and they're all going to be culled from different areas. And, um, I can definitely see where the idea of there's, it's not as much about here's 12 tracks and we're going to meticulously uh, uh, comb through each of the songs to make them unified and, and whatnot. It's it's much more like get out all these ideas and, and see what happens. It does seem like lo-fi and especially with the recording, it does limit the, I guess you'd say the genres that can utilize it. Like, I don't, I can't imagine like a death metal band being able to pull off a lo-fi recording or, you know what I mean? Because it would just overwhelm the speaker and you just have just sheer, you know, white noise. Um, some of
2: those death metal records are some of the worst sounding records I've ever heard in my life. Though. True, so and they were probably high, done in a it's studio. It's very possible that <laughs> some of them were made, uh, whether on purpose or not, uh, there was a, a lower fidelity applied.
1: But you know what I mean uh, like when I think of, of lo-fi yeah, yeah, I think saying. of like yeah. Oh, yeah. Kelvin Johnson and Beat Happening like having a very yeah. specific aesthetic and and is is lo-fi not just a recording technique and and aesthetic but is it also like a genre of music that, ha- that by itself
0: I think the one of the things I, as I was kind of going through some of the artists that were mentioned in Patreon and just listening to different albums, some I'd heard, some I hadn't. I was started to maybe head in this direction too, where it was like listening to some of the Elliott Smith stuff. I was like, well, I don't know that I would call this lo-fi because I would just call it minimalist. Like it's mostly vocals and acoustic guitar. And I don't know that they, they don't sound like they were recorded on a boom box. I mean, there's a particular production style to it and it it doesn't sound overproduced it sounds simple But then I could, you know, also see the argument. OK, but this, I guess, in some ways could fit into a lo-fi. Whereas Think guided by Voices, you have some things that are simple like that. But then you have also, also songs that have more of a full band thing that just sound like they're recorded on a boombox. Which then it, it's sort of like how expansive the sound is trying to be. Um, and and does that come in conflict with the recording Um medium that you're using or style that you're using and does that right. become part of the aesthetic too of like full band through boombox versus you know guy and acoustic guitar through boombox sounds one sounds still pretty big while the other one sounds you know the band through the boombox box sounds compressed and small just because you're trying to fit all the sound into a tiny microphone versus less sound into tiny microphone actually sounds normal almost
1: right yeah yeah that's a hard um well and, and, and you have to look at like Guided by voices where they have not always stayed consistently lo-fi i mean they made records with Rick casick and they have studio albums but the songwriting is the same and yeah. some of those songs were demoed on a boombox but then they you know turned them into fully fleshed out studio recordings with high fidelity. And so, and, and you mentioning back, that makes me think of the fact that like artists can sort of dip in and out of this. It's not necessarily a, something that is, uh, you know, some artist specific, like, you know, PJ Harvey doing a four track album, but then also doing, you know, fully fleshed out studio records. And, um, so it seems to me it's as much a like a a genre as is, it is a recording style because you can sort of jump into it in the same way that you can like make a metal record on one album and then make like a blues rock record. You can just sort of shift your sound around if you, you know, just by changing a few pieces and parts. Um, yeah, I
2: think I think that we would be remiss if we didn't call out what lo-fi stands for which is low fidelity or lower fidelity right so i think no matter what the sound or the the sort of like a, uh you know approaches from the artist from a songwriting perspective you know whether it's more pop leaning or folk leaning or or in a like for a band like um eric's trip who uh in, for my money probably made some of the best lower fidelity four track records, uh, that have ever come out, uh, especially in the nineties, um, you know, uh, it, 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 it all sounds, if you really listen to it, there are, you know, distinct identifiers where you can tell, you know, like Reed again mentioned tape hiss or, you know, just like some kind of like warble, you know, it kind of feels like it's a little, like, slower, and it kind of feels like it's almost, like, been melted or something. Like, it's, like, sitting in the car for too long. Like, if you put on, like, an Eric Strip record, which, you know, is is awesome because it kind of touches on what Jason was saying with, like, there's some songs that are very kind of, like, small and, like, acoustic and, like, Elliott Smith-esque, and then there's songs that are really loud and punk informed, you know, kind of like a dinosaur junior or like, you know, whatever, I guess the closest comparison for like a four track or a low five, get it by voices where things are just kind of blown out or whatever. Um, But when you listen to the, to those records, they feel compact in a way they feel like more intimate, you know? And so I think the million dollar question is, is it a genre or is it a, a an approach? And I think Tim, you kind of, you kind of answered it with it's both mm-hmm. and it's neither, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I think that might be the safe answer. And there's probably people who are like way more uh, aficionados uh, than, than I am that would be like, no, you know, it's, it's one or the other, but like,
0: For the record, Ryan, we looked, there aren't.
2: (laughs) Well, then I guess we're the kings of this.
1: (laughs) It it was hard to find. I, you know, I I did like try to do some research on on books that have been written and whatnot. And there really isn't like a definitive text on like on lo-fi. There's been some articles that people have written over the years but the closest i could find was there was a book that came out in like 2003 about lo-fi and diy culture but it was not only about music it was about art and you know outsider art and all sorts of things and i couldn't track down the author who apparently is not online which is very lo-fi and uh, <laughs> and you know not having a facebook page or a twitter or linkedin or anything like that um, so i think uh one of the things in reading you know these various articles that came up is that um the idea of what lo-fi was heading into the 90s sort of evolved so that lo-fi and indie rock became sort of interchangeable in some respects um that lo-fi prior to that had an element of like primitive associated with it it was really like one person with a guitar, very like tape hiss, and the songs were rudimentary, but there was an emotion behind them. And as a band like Guide to My Voices started putting full band, you know, recordings onto a onto a cassette, bo- uh, a boombox, and 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 exploring what else you could do, and other artists doing that, that it it evolved past what it had sort of originally started out as um so i found that interesting that the 90s sort of ushered in a new ap- approach to lo-fi that it's still about the lower fidelity and the immediacy of, of getting the recording done quickly um, but it expanded because you you think about Sebado and what lou barlow was doing with a band um a lot of those early records of his are all you know lo-fi there's you know 20 30 40 songs across you know multiple records that are a minute long or something like that and um
2: if you listen to like a Centrodo album and yeah. then you put on and then you put on like Dusk at Cuba's Castle by Olivia Contreras and you tell some these are both lo-fi records a a sort of like average Joe off the street would probably be like, no, like this Olivia Tremont control thing sounds like, it sounds like the Beatles, you know, honestly. Mm -hmm. And the Lou Barlow thing, you know, while it doesn't mean one is better than the other is way more of, again, it's got like an an intimate, you know, it's like, he didn't even bother to put all the strings on his guitar, you know, like (laughs) that's how it like kind of like elementary it sort of was, but it was about, you know, doing something the opposite opposite of what he was doing, which was being a dinosaur junior of the loudest fucking bands ever, you know, and wanting to to kind of react maybe against that. I mean, I don't know Lou. I can't speak for him, but like, I assume that was part of wanting to bring it into that smaller space, you know, because he are, he was doing something that was. Uh, in, in, you know, public eye and, and loud and, and, you know, being played in big clubs. And, and, I mean, if you peel back the like layers of noise from even some of his songs in Dinosaur Jr., you can hear the, like, the sort of like aching heart, you know, the tender blue underneath. And, and some of the best songs that he's put to tape are, you know, those, those types of songs that uh, expose that like vulnerability that only a lower fidelity recording might be able to do.
0: Downstroking.
3: I think that's interesting in that lo-fi recordings, maybe, you know, I think intentionally by the artists, but I think definitely received by this listener, at least for sure, um, they do kind of possess this humanity, you know, where sometimes I listen to a rock album and it sounds amazing, but it sounds inhuman. You know what I mean? Like, it just sounds like this thing that is so larger than life, so beyond what I feel like, I don't know. You know, it's, it's that kind of, uh cool thing about music but then there's something about lo-fi that brings it a little bit back down to earth where it's like you know you think of a daniel johnson you think of olivia tremor control um and it does kind of sound like this weird crazy little symphony or something that someone's just come up with in their kitchen and it's it's so cool to kind of have these like high melody, wonderful kind of psychi- the psychedelic music, right? That sounds so otherworldly, but it does sound so close at the same time. And I feel like that's part of why lo-fi is so cool. Um, and Tim, you were talking about how lo-fi really kind of took on a new evolution in the 90s, right? How it sort of became this interchangeable thing with indie rock. I would also venture to say that lo-fi became its most quote-unquote, mainstream, almost in the 90s, with singles like Loser by Beck, and you had that Liz Fair uh, Exile and Guyville album that I think is pretty lo-fi, that uh, saw some radio play, saw some chart success, right? So it's just interesting that this recording technique slash potential genre... Um, that is so close to outsider art, right? And so close to these kind of more experimental collage like listening experiences uh, did gain some radio traction for as, as weird as they can be, for sure.
1: Yeah, that the Liz Fair record that you mentioned is interesting because it was originally just all her demo cassettes. And then she sat down with Brad Wood and they did go into a studio to re record some stuff. But the way that they did it was. Um instead of you know you don't normally when you build a song in the studio, you start with the rhythm section and you build up from there you lay down the get the drums and the bass unless you 're playing having a full band play live that 's not what Brad Wood did. brad Wood just took the songs that she had and then just played drums to them, so he was basing it based on what she had already written as a um as a uh a track. And then tried to figure out how to play the drums to them. So it's a, it's a, it's a lo-fi starting point. Um, I don't think that it's, I think the girly sound stuff that, uh, that, that all comes from is probably the lo-fi, um, origins, but it's definitely an approach that you would not take normally to record, uh, your rhythm section. Um, I think that's how
2: they did that Ben Lee record too, that he produced um maybe not exactly like that but you bringing that up kind of i think that it's got one foot in the lo-fi grave if i can (laughs) ridiculous
3: nice i went
2: to school for journalism um (laughs) where it's got again it's got that like fly by the seat of your pants kind of thing where it's like whatever you know you've got this the bed track is uh, guitar And vocal and I'm gonna you know lay these drums down is there bass on that record maybe probably it's really quiet but the Ben Lee record is kind of the same vibe where it's like you know this kid with these songs that you know he was in a band called Noise Addict who were louder and more sort of punk informed and wanted to like bring that closer to a singer-songwriter type of sound and Again, I I think you listen to that record. You listen to this fair record, and you don't immediately go like, "Those are lo-fi records." But the spirit of lo-fi definitely uh, it runs through those types of of records. And there's probably more that I can't think of right now that kind of have that same. um, I think a a, a record like Sloan's "One Chord to Another" is another uh, album that all the drums for that record are recorded on a cassette four track. Um, and then the, uh, you know, kind of took those four track recordings of the drums and then started to, the, you know, like layer things on in the studio, which, you know, I think makes that record sound super unique. Like the drums kind of sound boxy and like, you know, not overly produced. And, and you know, it this it's just like a really unique sound where like the guitars are super pristine, but the drums have this kind of like, dirt on them or something you know and and those and that band and the adjacent bands around them I already mentioned Eric's trip but uh Thrush Hermit and uh Hardship Post and some of these like uh Halifax bands that were kind of related to Sloan you know they were recording themselves and putting those out on vinyl and and tape and and they were like pretty like clean pop bands or whatever you know but like they they sort of again it it's about like hey you, you can do this ourselves and so we should you know um but yeah I think there's there's definitely like this like spirit of lo-fi that that ex- and that's maybe why lo-fi and indie rock kind of get like muddled together you know and I actually I hate genres <laughs> like it's just <laughs> They're just songs man you know like if the song is good i don't care if it's recorded you know on someone's phone you know like doesn't matter to me if the song rules the song rules but um i don't know i th- i think that uh that the 90s were definitely a time where even if you were trying to make something more like clean and pristine even a band like pavement where like slane and chanted I don't know the history of the recording. I don't have any idea if it's four track or eight track or studio or whatever, but it feels homemade, you know? Yeah.
0: It it feels homemade, but like that record and even Archers of Loaf, which we reviewed before, they feel, it's interesting. Like you can tell like, okay, they perform these, they're playing as a band they work this material out. It doesn't sound like, uh, like got up my voices where it's like this spontaneous, more spontaneous, like, Hey, I have this idea. I want to get it down. Let's go, 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 go. Yeah. It feels like, okay, these are our songs and we've been working on them for a while. And like, they all go together, but then it's recorded in a way that's, you know, like, like sometimes I listen to it. I'm like, okay, these are just weird mic choices. And maybe the amps are up too loud, <laughs> you know, or like the, hot, or, the ride symbol. Is that like, that super, like, like,
2: metallic almost sounding ride symbol where like the mm. mic is like right on top of it and it sounds like you're hitting like like a pan or something like mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah i know exactly what you're talking about
0: which um, makes me think like how much of this was on purpose like at the time like yeah we wanted it to sound like that and how much was like well this is what it sounds like and we're good with it and you know it's that those albums to me get in know even weirder space of um just right there at the edge even like uh we were talking about spoon which Reed, you've been on the round table we we talked about that band for an hour but something like Telefono, you know it's very like spontaneous sounding it sounds real it sounds intimate but from a fidelity standpoint i would put it it's more like it's closer to a beatles record like from a just a pure like if you looked at it on a a, you know uh a graph and looked at what frequencies were there and like high, how high or low fidelity it is. Like the range is pretty good, but it sounds small and intimate and, you know, fairly crude.
2: Well, I think there's like an aesthetic choice to like, I think an acoustic guitar through a distortion pedal to kind yeah. of, again, it goes back to the, the spirit of lo-fi permeating in these nineties records that maybe weren't recorded in a dank basement with Mm. like, you know, cassettes and like a case of Budweiser at your feet, you know, like they were recorded in studios, but choices were made. So it didn't feel like, you know, it's like the Ramones deciding to, to, you know, um, whatever you know aesthetic choices they made that made that different sounding than you know whatever was on the radio at the time like the, it didn't sound like you know yes or something like that yeah.
1: right good.
0: and the then other people, people heard that sound like oh that's a that's a cool guitar tone like how did they do that and then that right. becomes like a thing that other people try to do well i mean you can get oh, the
2: that. ramones guitar tone a lot easier than you can play keyboards like rick Wake, wakeman you know what i mean right. that's <laughs> just the, right yeah. You know, and I think like running your guitar, your acoustic guitar through a distortion pedal, you know, it, it, it and I know that Brit and Spoon, those guys are huge Guided by Voices fans. So it probably came from that. And obviously like those early records are very Pixies
1: mm-hmm. influenced
2: and, and, you know, Albini uh, is famous for not producing, you know, he captures the band as they sound. He doesn't, I mean, obviously he's, he's, you know, a genius when it comes to micing drums and, and capturing drum sounds and things like that. But, like, if you really listen to some Albini records, like, whether it's 90s or, like, some of those, like, Cloud Nothings records that have come out in the last few years, like, the guitars are just, they just sound like guitars. There's nothing yeah. special about them, you know? And so even today, that spirit kind of lives on where it's like, yeah, man, we don't need to dress all this up.
1: I want to go through uh, some of the albums we've mentioned, and then also uh, some other ones that were mentioned at our Patreon page. Just want to go through them and 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 see if you guys have listened to them or are familiar with them. Uh, Willie Dillon mentioned the Grifters, uh, "One sock missing and crapping you negative." He said, "Once you listen to these, you'll have two socks
3: missing after they get rocked off." <laughs> <laughs> With a recommendation like that, I have to. Oh, my God.
2: Yeah, if you're... A, grifters are, are uh, gnarly, for sure. Um, there, There's a GBV kind of, like, connection where they... Uh, I think they put out, like, some split seven inches together. Um, they eventually, I think, put a couple records out on Sub Pop later in the 90s, uh, which I think I own one of and, and owned back in the nineties as well, but then like found it cheap on vinyl, but not a band that I'm like a huge fan of or anything like that. But, when when Gataba Voices comes up and, and sort of that whole like scene, it's like them and like Thomas Jefferson slave apartments, like bands that are like either Ohio based or, you know, there was like a brethren starting to form, uh you know and that's and where they were like rock bands but their records didn't really sound like they sounded live and i think there's were one of those types of bands where they were like massive live but their records were again out of like necessity recorded in a lower fidelity
0: drunken
1: Um, Jeremy Amen said Pavement Slanted and Enchanted Sebado's 3 Bubble and Scrape and Smash Your Head for the Pink Cover Moon if nothing else and GBV 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 Uh, Andrew O.C. said Tom Daly's Happily Deceiving Culture are any of you guys familiar with that record? oh might be one for the uh, for the uh, after show have to go check that out Uh, Jeff Gentis said Hayden's Everything I Long For And P.J. Harvey's four track demos that he said was on the nose, but qualifies. Um, I I remember Hayden, but I don't like know Hayden well. Have you guys listened to that record?
2: Yeah. So I live in Detroit and we had the luxury of having our alternative rock station based in Windsor, Canada. And so
1: is that 89X?
2: 89X. Yes. Yes. Good one. Uh, which no longer exists, but uh, oh. sadly, uh, or maybe not, I don't know. They were just probably playing like Nickelback now, but um, they, they would play a ton of Canadian content. And can Hayden, rock. yeah, can con can rock. Like uh, Hayden's girl of my dreams was a huge song. Like, I don't know if if it was bigger outside of Detroit, Windsor, <laughs> but uh it was a it was a really popular song and he's got this very low um kind of baritone voice um maybe like the the best comparison i can make is like a Stephen Merritt from uh from magnetic fields like it's kind of in that zone where it's uh, okay or, or <laughs> the crash test dummies guy for uh the lesser uh informed but um yeah, just like very intimate, acoustic-based, folky stuff, you know, that's probably way more popular in Canada than it is in the United States.
1: <laughs> um, Mike Cervino mentioned back Elliot Smith, Pavement, Sebado, and a lot of the Eleven Six 6 output, mainly Olivia Trummer Control's Dusk at Cubed Castle, which we discussed earlier. John Pennycock... He had some interesting ones. Miracle of Sound in Motion by Steel Pole Bathtub. Uh, Bake Sale by Sebado. Four track demos by P.J. Harvey. Back Saturday by Prolapse are all fairly lo-fi. I've not listened to Prolapse or Steel Pole Bathtub. Uh, Maybe (laughs) Chin Music by Small.
2: Oh, Uh, yeah. That's uh, North Carolina, like kind of Archers of Loaf adjacent.
1: and he mentioned arches of loaf as well he said less obvious mad for sadness by arab strap and early corner shop were quite lo-fi before they were discovered uh mentioned some of their uh also he said um truman's waters truman's water spasm smash x x uh, blah 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 blah. a lot of words and letters there um (laughs) so you guys have heard of some of those
2: yeah I mean I you know not. i'm forty one years old and red magnet magazine uh, <laughs> like it was the like my roadmap to indie rock like uh jeopardy or something you know, so I'm familiar with a lot of them I can't say that I've listened to every single one of them sure um and and mostly because it was harder to get a hold of stuff you know back then and and the the cream rises to the cr- to the, to the top, obviously you know, and so um not to like throw shade at some of at some of those records, but like
1: kind of did you know
2: it, it's it it was harder to yeah and i i did i'm sorry for truman's water I bet.
3: <laughs> um steel pole bathtub yeah
2: but uh but you know i think that if you weren't like really digging you know uh past the g v v and past like you know some of that like more well-known stuff you you probably didn't stumble upon a lot of that but you know again it was harder to get a hold of it and,
3: and
1: right um, yeah
3: I, I sorry i was just going to say from these lists i feel like i only listen to mainstream lofi so i really, yeah, <laughs> <my> <laughs> mainstream fi there we go yeah
1: um josh page mentioned uh, gbv pavement Sebado, uh and then uh, olivia Trevor control and also apples and stereo Early Appleson Stereo, uh, one of the Elephant Six bands. Johnny Hooper said, all of the above, and let's not forget most of the K Records discography. Um, and then Eric Peterson, always coming at us with a, out, of, uh, out of left field, he said there was a whole lo-fi surf and garage rock scene with bands like the Mummies and the Trash Women. So that's interesting. A sub-lo-fi genre. Of surf lo fi and garage. So-fi. Sofi, Sofi. Where you can also uh, you can listen to music and get new insurance. I think. Is that what <laughs> SoFi does? I have no idea. I, I just see the
0: commercial. It's personal loans, but
1: insurance. Course. Is it a new drug that's gonna give me uh you know, some sort of ulcer as a side effect and
0: get a personal loan to build a studio so you can make hi fi records. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there you go. They're tearing it all down. So we need to thank all of our uh, our uh, folks at Patreon for contributing to the discussion and sharing their lo-fi records with us. Um, if- I have a question. Yeah.
0: In the world of everybody has GarageBand on their laptop or their iPad or their phone and access to, you know, halfway decent microphones for less than a hundred bucks is there such thing as lo-fi anymore? Without, like, in, in the most genuine sense of, like, hey, I want to get this idea to, out, and this is all I can afford, and, like, I want to be, be scrappy and do a cut-and-paste thing, and is it, is it really, what, what is it possible? And if it is, what is it?
2: Yes. I mean, I think the introduction of computers into recording and, and the ease, the access, accessibility, and, you know, like you said, Jason, like, you know, you can get a pretty good mic for, you know, a couple hundred bucks if you really want to um, plug it right into your computer. You don't even need like an audio interface anymore, um, which you should get kids anyway. <laughs> but um, I think that, um, you know, when you go to a studio, if you go to a good studio, and I don't mean like a million dollar studio, but you know, a studio that might charge you, you know, 500 bucks a day to record or something like that. You know, you're gonna see some type of like analog outboard gear. You're gonna see, you know, um, some kind of like nod to the way that records were made in the 60s, really like the 70s, where you know they're running things through you know not just the processing that's available in garageband or logic or something like that but that being said you know as i i can only make my comments personal you know i've i've made home recordings forever on my computer they have sounded like garbage uh for most of my existence as a songwriter because they were never intended to be heard by anybody beyond my bandmates, you know? And when I decided, you know, I I need to start like capturing what I'm writing. I don't know when I'm going to play a show again. I don't know what's, what, what it's going to look like, you know, at the, at the onset of the pandemic, you know, I really started to try to read more investigate more, whether it be about gear or just like using the built-in or like, um, you know, using the, 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 the processing, you know, even like compression, for example, like, man, you can make something that doesn't sound great sound a hell of a lot better if you know how to use compression, drums, guitar, vocals, whatever. And I had just never learned that, you know, I never cared about it. Like I always recorded in studios and somebody else would worry about all that stuff and I just perform, you know? So I think it, it, I don't know if this is answering your question, but I think that you can, with work, you can make something that's homemade sound as good as you want it to and as good as you can afford it to you know it just but or you can just do something super dry and super simple and it would go back to just like basically being the equivalent of a four track or a boombox where you don't put any processing on it you don't really you know gussy it up with any of the extras I, I will admit that I made and this is a super lame plug but I'm just gonna come clean about it because I thought it was kind of cool so I I just released a six song EP it's called Digital Hiss and the reason it's called that is because I found a plugin for Logic that puts tape hiss on everything so I already was like <laughs> oh, I want to make something that's kind of like fast, lo-fi, like just write it, record it. Like I I ended up writing like six songs in a day and recording them all in, in a single day. And it just felt like, it felt like, you know, an Eric strip record or something like that. But then, but then it sounded too good. So I was like, how do I make this sound a little shittier? So my brother bought me this Tape Hiss plug and I put it on the entire, every track has this digital fake, tape hiss throughout and if you if you really listen you can kind of hear it you know and it just made it feel more like it should feel you know so i don't know if that is super lame or cool or whatever but <laughs> it goes back to your original question like is yeah. it a genre or is it a sound you know yeah. I felt like without that that hiss and that warble it just didn't feel right to me yeah you know? huh
1: That's great. Interesting. As far as whether or not it's still around because of, you know, the advent of GarageBand and home recording on computers, there are actually other genres that have taken on uh, lo-fi. There's lo-fi hip hop. Yep. um, And there are, uh, there's chill wave, which is another one that I've read about. That, that the kids are into uh yeah,
2: washed out is a really good example of
1: yeah um and uh, a lot of home recorded psychedelic music uh is is utilizing lo-fi techniques because of the fact that it can create um you know these a, a psychedelic psychedelic aspect that maybe uh is a little bit easier to pull off with the noise and whatnot um so Is it's it still around.
2: Warmth? Is it about warmth? Because I, I feel like we, we kind of didn't talk about that, but I feel like a lot of when, times when people talk about tape, they talk about this like concept of it sounding or feeling warm, yeah. you know, feeling like uh, it was made, you know, and, and in a confined space, you know, a tape feel, a tape has a feel, right? It has a sound, but there's like this kind of, you know, Uh, psychological thing that it does to your brain that you feel this sound, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and, and you want to equate it with this idea of warmth. And, and I, I do think that whether it's super hi-fi recordings or recordings made, you know, on a four track, the reason to use tape is because you're trying to achieve that, that warmth you're trying to achieve that kind of like buzz or fuzz or just that, that like, that it's because it's physical, right? Like you can't feel an MP3 or a wave file, you know,
3: Mm.
2: but because it's tape moving, you know, in a circular pattern, there's a physicality to it in the same way that there's a physicality to a vinyl record, you know? And so I don't really have a point here, but I think that back to the idea of like making something on a computer and can it be lo-fi? I think the answer is yes, because the the sound quality can be all over the map depending on the gear that you're using. But but maybe it's that overall warmth and and um, physical uh, element that gives it that extra characteristic that makes it unique and distinct. Yeah, discuss. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah, I, I can also see, like, the argument being that, yeah, just using the n- modern technology, but doing it in a very, like, um, using, like, what's readily available and simple. So, like, recording straight onto your iPhone, right? Like, just hitting the, like, creating a video of yourself performing. Like, I guess you can make the case that, while that's much better fidel- fidelity technically than we had in the 80s for a device that everybody owns it's still lower fidelity than what you would hear on the radio
3: <laughs> not, so yeah not studio recorded and i think yeah. to to tim your point about kind of how lo-fi has maybe started to evolve it's so funny to me that when you type in the term lo-fi in google the first thing that's probably going to pop up is the lo-fi hip-hop beats to chill and study to youtube channel and which has just become <laughs> its own strange digital presence um and i guess sort of shares some of the qualities of the lo-fi music that we're talking about where it's it's a little maybe kind of crunchier in your headphones just kind of these beats right um but it, it has completely evolved away from these you know, kind of wannabe rock stars, right? Like making these records in these little pocket symphonies in their kitchen to this cartoon of a girl studying it that teenagers all around the world are using to just, you know, find some solace in. It's it's kind of cool. It's kind of cool.
1: Ryan, are you yeah, getting the uh are you getting the signal it's time to time to Oh no,
2: I'm in charge
3: of <laughs>
1: myself.
2: Okay. <laughs> sure. I'll stay up late and talk about lo-fi as long as I want. <laughs> Honey.
0: I'm waiting uh, for something to come flying uh, across the room yeah. and hit you in the head. A
2: four-track before, before <laughs> just comes out of the a,
0: a, a, a box of cassettes is dumped on yeah, your head. The, the,
2: the, <laughs> Ma- the Maxell 90-minute Chinese star. <laughs>
1: um. Well, I think... Um, Unless there's other stuff you guys want to cover. I think we've covered quite a bit. Um I don't want to take this over, you know, take this uh, into the two-hour mark. Uh, I think a, a good hour <laughs> on this is probably solid. But I do want to ask, um, if you were going to uh, introduce someone to the lo-fi genre, what's the record that you would use to do so? If you if somebody's like, hey, what's this lo-fi I have heard about? And you say, here, here's the album. Check it out. Uh, Reed, let me uh, ask you, what's the record that you're going to hand someone and say, this is what, to me, lo-fi is all about?
3: Ooh, I would, and I I feel sorry uh, if I steal anybody else's answer here, but I feel like the obvious one to me is is B-1000 by Guided by Voices. It's just such a stone-cold classic, up and down, just as like a 90s rock album, Um, But I think it's so special because of how warped and strange it is. Um, We were talking about how kind of an element of life of lo-fi is when you have instruments that suddenly cut out. And one of my favorite moments is in hardcore UFOs when there's this like blazing guitar solo that all of a sudden just goes away. And you're like, I thought, wasn't, weren't we doing something here? And it just all of a sudden disappears. Um, And there's so many little weird backdoors in that album that just do that um but that's the thing i think the first i remember that was one of the first lo-fi recordings like truly lo-fi recordings that i ever heard and i think the first time i heard it i was like what is this why would anyone listen to this but then i don't know you start to kind of hear past the hiss at the genius that's happening in the Crazy amounts of melody in the Beatles-esque just songwriting and it just it's sticky like candy. I I love that album, and I think if I was gonna show anybody into the uh woolly maze that is lo-fi, it would be B Thousand by Guided by Voices.
1: Okay. Ryan, what what say you?
2: Um Reed took the best choice. So uh,
1: <laughs> you go with Alien Lanes. <laughs> true um
2: which was the first gbb record i heard was alien lanes as a 15 year old kid and i can tell you every single one of my friends thought i was insane for listening to it and i and i also thought i was insane because it was one of those situations where same thing that reed was describing where it's just like why am i why am i listening to this why do i keep coming back to it you know and it was the songs right but um not to 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 you know expand or expound on my love for for guided by Voices. I'm going to say Love Terra by Eric's Trip. Okay. And I, I don't know if it exemplifies a lot of the same type of characteristics that Reed was describing with with GBV with the um just it just like the impact that I guess that it made culturally. But for me, I you know, again, growing up in Detroit, getting access to Canadian music, getting into Sloan, you know, uh, big time, and then wanting to figure out who the other bands were that they were, like, championing, Eric's trip is the one that, like, really stood out to me because it felt like, you know, this is something I could could do, you know, as a 15-year-old learning how to play guitar, you know, in the same way that I felt like that when I heard Nirvana. Bye. From a sound perspective, you know, it's basically My Bloody Valentine, um, Dinosaur Jr., and then, like, Simon and Garfunkel or something all colliding on a record where there's really intimate, like, super tape-hissy moments where it's just, you know, softly sung vocals, uh, typically um, Rick White and and Julie Doran uh, singing and harmonizing together. um, And this really just, like um vulnerable way singing about their relationship and their breakup and this these like heartbreaking songs followed by like the most bombastic, noisy, sludgy, but super melodic guitar rock that you've ever heard. So I to, to me they put out three uh perfect albums. Um and Rick White went on to make some really cool records as Elevator to Hell and Julie and everybody in that band has done other things that have kind of still felt lo-fi and felt like homemade, but Love Terra is just like su- such a super special record to me. Um, and I and I and again, I, it 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 does have some of those characteristics of like songs feeling like they end too soon or like you know something coming in like mixed way higher than it should be. Like why is that guitar solo way louder than the drums? Like this is comical, you know. But it's like, they didn't know that there's like the guitar soul, it's got a hit. And, you know, they're already bouncing tracks down to, you know, one, so they can make room for, you know, so it, there's that, that quality to it. And, um, but the, the thing about it, not to like go on and on about it, but like the thing that makes it really such a cool record to me is how softly sung the vocals are over these like massive sludgy guitars like i I don't know if like anybody really did it better besides maybe dinosaur jr um and maybe my bloody valentine but um love that record love that band and uh if you haven't heard any of the records i would immediately
3: change that i haven't heard it and i'm going to also eric strip named after the sonic youth song on daydream nation very cool
2: yep canadian uh three records on subpop uh just amazing, amazing
0: music.
1: Jay, do you have a pick? Well, I, I was
0: using Guide to Voices as kind of my benchmark, B-1000. So that's where I started to, as I compared that, because to me it typifies everything we talked about. There's a spontaneous feel to it. Um, there's intimate moments. There's full band moments. There's definitely tapis. You know, it's, it sort of checks all the boxes that I, that we talked about. So to me, it, it typifies the genre as best as anything. And if you're talking about the genre, it's a great place to kind of benchmark other things too. If aliens came down, that's probably the record I would hand to them and explain like what the hell what lo-fi is or my wife. Because <laughs> there's a lot of other things I play and she's like, I don't get what do you, what's, what do you mean? Why is that lo-fi? Because one of the things I, I was thinking about on this is like, isn't this all subjective anyway? Like whatever your personal like reference point is for high fidelity is, is yours. And then everything else is either above or below that. So I was like, you know, Tom Scholz from Boston thinks everything's (laughs) lo-fi if it's not a Boston
1: record. So
0: (laughs) I think we can all agree that B-1000 is a good place to start.
1: Yeah. Um, I would go with, uh, I mean, uh, an obvious pick would be in the airplane over the sea by, uh, that band, that band, everybody knows that band. And, um, but I, I think the one that was I actually first went, Oh, well this is different was bake sale by Sebado, um, which was recorded at Albini's house, but not by Albini. It was recorded by Bob Weston, um, and uh, it's an interesting record because I think some of the record sounds pretty high fidelity, and it sounds good. And then there are there are tracks interspersed in there that have a are very fi sound. It's it's in in the sense it's sort of like a GBV record in that sense, but the songs are fully fleshed out. There's no cutting off of songs, but there's just you get like you know Lou with an acoustic guitar for a song, but then you get a full band fuzzed out you know, rock and song. Um, I've gone back to the earlier Sebado records, but none of them connect with me as well as, as bake sale, um, does. So, um, that's probably the one that I would go with. That's
2: their, that's their masterpiece. If you ask me, I mean that, that I can't tell you how many hours I spent mowing the lawn, listening to that on, you know, tape on my Walkman. Like, there, th- that record. It's. It, I think it exemplifies that. Like, it feels small, but the song, the songs are huge. You know, right. from a melodic and just like, I don't know. Like, they're, and and I think the 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 thing going back to Reed's point about the collage feel, it gets further pushed by that record because there's multiple songwriters, multiple. Right. There's instruments being switched. You know, so it, it, it for you know one song, it feels like the Minutemen. And the next one, it's like, you know, more of like a traditional indie rock or whatever kind of sounding song, like rebound yeah. or something, you know? So that, that, that feel is definitely there.
3: I I'm going to go back to Bakesdale just because of this conversation, because I will be, I will, I will, I will wave this flag, which is probably an unwise thing to do and say that I've never liked that album at all ever. Mm-hmm. I, wish i loved bake sale more and i've tried and it's just not my thing i don't know why but i you know what maybe if i think of it more as kind of a lo-fi thing and and try to i don't know really think about it just in in all these different kind of rock styles and punk styles like you guys are talking about maybe it'll click but it's never clicked for me i don't know why 53rd I mean, you're,
1: time's you're a wrong.
3: charm you're just
2: <laughs> incredibly wrong. Said.
0: So just, uh, just be
2: right and like it.
0: Maybe you need to <laughs> mow the lawn to it. Uh, it's true. There you go. <laughs> true.
2: I, think it, I think it does depend though. Like Reed, I'm going to guess that you're a bit younger yeah. uh, than the three of us, but I think it, 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 it's interesting. And I think this plays into lo-fi a, a bit because if you're of a certain age, you, you haven't heard certain things yet, right? And you have heard certain things yet. So, you know, if you started listening to music, you know, and your introduction to, like, rock and roll was, and I'm just, I'm not saying this is true, but, like, let's say it was Blink-182, right? Close. Or like, Green Day but, yeah. or something like that, there you right? Go. Like, that's, that's a much different experience than somebody you know, who has like first heard slanted and enchanted and then bake sale comes out and they're like, Oh, this is like in that same pool. Right. Like I can jump from this to that. Whereas like, you know, if Dookie or, you know, insomniac was your first exposure to, to, to rock, you know, besides like, you know, whatever your parents listened to and Beatles or something like it definitely is. You, you feel like you're kind of going backwards a little bit. Like, now it's sounding shittier to me, <laughs> like what's going on here, you know? Um, so anyway, I, I, I it's it's interesting to talk to somebody or, you know, to have somebody included in this conversation who came to it after it sort of probably had its heyday, you know, so to speak.
3: Yeah, no. And, you know, that's an interesting thing, too, with, with lo-fi, because you're right. I think I started to, I, it's like I climbed down into a well, you know, where it was like I got into... Uh, kind of your Velvet Underground, which is definitely rougher recorded, right, than like an American idiot. And then I kind of went into this subterranean area with Guided by Voices and was like, what? What am I in? Why is everything so broken? Like, what is this? Who um, <laughs> <You> broke everything? <laughs> yeah, like, why is this in ruins? Um, but no, I, I think you're right. And I think that's kind of the interesting thing, too, Tim, I think, to your original question with like, how would you describe or how would you introduce someone to the concept of lo-fi? It is kind of weird to be like, hey, there's this genre of rock music that is, you know, very shoddily recorded, sort of on purpose, and they don't sing well, and the instruments are out of tune. <laughs> right. But you're going to like it. I sign, sign me up. Sign me up. Yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah. I want to play you something that sounds bad. Hey. I mean...
1: On purpose. Yeah. Yep.
2: It's like yep. drink this rancid milk. You
1: know? yeah. <laughs> oh, I think this milk went bad. Try it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, gents, thanks so much for, uh, spending your, your Wednesday evening with us, trying to figure out what lo-fi is and what it isn't. And, and, and why should people should, should listen to it as, uh, you just, um, mentioned that it's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, uh, a malleable genre based on your own perspectives and how, how, you know, if all you've ever listened to is the sound of a radiator, uh, in your car, it's going to sound like the best produced music (laughs) ever. If all you've ever listened to are Boston records, it's going to sound not so good. Yeah. Uh, according to Jay. So, and
0: I don't think there was ever a lo-fi tour, right? It's it's unique in that way. Like, I think of every other genre we've had, we could probably go find some tour or festival at some point that was put together around it. But I don't think there's been any lo-fi music.
2: Lo-fi event. musicians don't leave their houses. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's the
1: whole point. Yeah. When could Bob Pollard ever have time to leave his house? He's got to record 35 songs a day. So, uh, actually, he does tour. And it's, it's quite uh, amazing. Uh, so... Reed, Ryan, thank you both for, for coming back and, and spending time with Jay and I, uh, you guys had anything going on, Ryan, you got a new album out next week or?
2: <laughs> uh, I'm working on a new extra arms record actually Excellent. right now. Okay. Um, and, and that, sh- you know, it probably could come out this year, but, but we're probably going to save it for next year so we can actually play some shows and maybe sell a couple of copies. But, um, we're doing it and kind of they've, uh, you know, to bring it back to this conversation, it's not necessarily where we're doing it lo-fi, but we are doing it like kind of at home and people are sending things from their, their residents. And, you know, we did get together kind of in a, you know, just two person, you know, it's a four person band, but two people at a time, masks and all that stuff to, you know, um, tracks sort of like the bed tracks, but um, it's been a really interesting way of making a record. Like I, I'm, I'm, you know, can do it on my own and kind of just like make the choices and be done with it, but trying to collaborate and, you know, do something like as a collective in this like weird Zoom, Zoom culture way that we live now is really interesting. But I will say that one of the cool parts about it is that we've been able to get some uh, familiar to the show guests to be on the record, which I'm not going to reveal right now. But uh, some people that uh, listeners of this show would be familiar with have contributed mm. some some stuff. So um, I'm really excited about that. And uh, yeah, you know, look for it later this year or next year.
1: Interesting. Interesting. I wonder who it'll be wonder who that might be. I'll have to, I'll have to rack my brain about, uh, I'll uh, just
2: tell you when we're done recording. Is there like going to be like a, a,
1: is, (laughs) is there going to be a part where like we go to a breakdown and it's going to be like Kid Rock is going to drop a a drop of eight bars. Yeah. The the ghost of,
3: the
2: ghost of
0: Josie is on every song. Yes. (laughs) Insane Clown Posse. Oh my God.
2: Any, any terrible Detroit artists. um, (laughs) I've, I've roped them in. I, Uncle I cracker. want to hear
3: an insane clown posse lo-fi album. That would be quite the experience, <laughs> for sure. For sure.
1: Uh, Reed, what are you up to? You doing any uh, writing or anything uh, currently, or uh, you going to COVID break?
3: You know it, it it ebbs and flows for sure. But yeah, I think the best way to follow my antics is to follow me on Twitter at Um I do write things here and there. Sometimes they're tweets and it's 10 o'clock at night and they're not very well thought out. And sometimes (laughs) they're rankings like, you know, breaking down what is the worst to best uh, spoon or Green Day record. It just depends. You never know. So come come on Twitter and see the grab bag for sure.
1: Excellent. Uh, I need to remind our listeners that if uh, you would like to be uh, part of the crew that suggests... Uh, uh, round table ideas and then actually gets to vote on them. You got to do that at Patreon. It's where you can join for just two bucks a month to start, uh, voting in our polls. And, uh, it's also where you can read, uh, editions of the box newsletter that comes out every week, the box newsletter delivering reviews of new music, one minute reviews. Uh, I'm doing them. And then also some of our patrons have been submitting their one minute reviews of new records, uh, Relevant to 80s and and 90s artists that we cover. It's delivered to your email inbox, but you can also read it at Patreon. And then also uh, you can sign up at digmeoutpodcast.com for the newsletter. It's also where you go to suggest a record that gets tossed into one of our polls. Nine albums a month get voted on, as uh, which we're going to review. So that's where all the things happen. And of course, if you like what you heard... Apple Podcasts is the place to go to leave us some positive feedback. So for Jay, I'm Tim. We're out, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out.
3: Ice, baby. I saw your girlfriend.